Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. It is interesting that when you have a strong appetite or you're feeling a hunger of some kind, you're willing to bend certain standards. Have you ever been there so hungry that you're like, uh, man, a salad never looked so good, you know, that kind of thing? Uh, I remember one time I did a 10-day cleanse where you make this mixture of uh, lemon juice, maple syrup, and cayenne pepper, and you mix it in with just a little bit of water, and that's all you drink for 10 days. Aside from, first thing in the morning, you have to drink like two liters of warm salt water, and it, uh, it goes right through you, and it's a cleanse. It's really a cleanse. And uh, about, about day nine and 10 of the cleanse, like I was feeling quite a difference, but I was really beginning to look forward to eating, you know, normal food again. And I remember, I think it was probably day nine, um, this is before we had any children. Laura and I were in our little car, and she needed to stop by her parents' place. So we pulled up outside of her parents' place. She said, I'll be real quick. So she, I just thought, well, I won't go in. I'll, I'll just stay in the car. Stay in the car. She ran in the house. And uh, you know how it is. Like, sometimes I'll just be quick, but she's reconnecting with family and all that. So I'm just do-to-do-to-do. And I look over, and at her feet is a bag of Ruffles all-dressed potato chips. And it's open, and like the top's folded over. So I'm like, well, nobody would know, you know. Um, but I'm like, I'm, I'm on my cleanse. I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm going to finish strong. And then I thought, you know, your mind begins to wander. I'm like, I remember what those smell like. And my mouth salivated right away. I'm like, I, on this cleanse, I'm allowed to smell stuff. You know, that's... <laughs> so I grabbed the bag of chips and just, you know breathe deeply in, and boy, did that smell good. And I, quit, I was embarrassed. I'm like, here, I'm a grown man sitting smelling chips in a car. <laughs> so I pull it over, throw it aside, embarrassed, ashamed, and I went, well, that, that smelled real good. Why is she taking so long? You know, she's putting me in a hard place here. I deserve, you know, I'm going to have another smell. So I have another smell. Put it aside, very embarrassed. And then I started going into a weird place in my mind. Again, the appetite's very strong. Now I've smelt something. Uh, your mind goes to places where when you're rational, you're just not, you don't think this way. But I began thinking about, like, technically, what is eating? <laughs> technically, you know. If I'm to sample the flavor of something without swallowing, you know, like, <laughs> that's not eating, right? You know, I could do that on a cleanse. So your mind actually starts coming up with other ideas. I'm like, you feel pretty smart in that moment. I'm like, yeah, that's right. This is good. And so I just thought, I'll just consider it, you know. So I pulled out a chip and looked at it, and it was was very beautiful. (laughs) And now I'm smelling it, and (laughs) I licked it. And I felt so embarrassed and ashamed. I rolled down the window. We didn't have power windows. I rolled down the window, threw it out, rolled it back up, put the chip back in the bag over in Laura's side. And she still doesn't come, so I'm waiting and waiting. And now I'm a little bit irritated at her. I think that my issue with these chips is her fault, not mine, 
you know, if she only came back and was, then I wouldn't have these problems. And anyway, uh, by the time she came back, I had about five or six chips laying outside of my door that I had licked on both sides. Now I didn't, I didn't chew, I didn't swallow, so I didn't go, you know, I didn't go all the way. I just, I just enjoyed the flavor. Man, when you are hungry for something, there are t- times that you find yourself bending standards. And it starts making sense when it really shouldn't. And later on, after you've eaten a few real meals, in my case, it's like, what was I thinking with the chips thing? I was, I'd gone crazy. <laughs> Here's the reality. In our life, in our world, in our experience, in your life and in mine, we have appetites of all kinds beyond just our hunger for food. And how do we actually manage that? Does God offer any advice or guidance for us? Or does he just sort of like, hey, have at her. Uh, You might ruin yourself with this, but just whatever you want kind of thing. I I want us to ponder that a little bit today. We're into this series now, it's fourth week, Jesus in the bedroom, this idea of relationship, sex, sexuality, all this. The reality is, as you saw in that little video there, 2,000 years ago, the words and the ways of Jesus... um, gave rise to the very first sexual revolution. It helped humanity actually uh, recalibrate onto a better path that, that synced up far better with how the Father had designed things from the beginning. But humanity and cultures had swayed so far into various kind of directions that the ways and words of Jesus, as they were embraced by the early church and passed from generation to generation, within a few hundred years, literally transformed the, the Roman civilization and has brought a positive imprint in many ways to culture. Now, society and culture of all kinds since then continues to drift this way and that, and you and I even know what it's like in our own lives, in our own souls, to feel the push and the pull in certain directions at times. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, and by way of just recap really quickly, here's four foundational realities that I just want us to revisit Uh, most of the time through this series, because it's helpful to us to just remember and affirm these things. They sort of lay a framework upon which we can kind of launch into some of the different words and thoughts that we go into through this series. So the first one is this. Number one, uh, sex is not a basic human need. Uh, The first week of this series, we talked about basic human needs, you know, sleep, uh, water, food, shelter, Wi-Fi, battery power, toilet paper, etc., and that's it. Um, if you were to put sex on that list, which for some people were like, no, that is a basic human need. I deserve it. I'm entitled to it. But if we were to acknowledge that, then it's a huge disservice. It's almost dehumanizing to people who live a single life. They're somehow discriminated against, and that's not the case. Um, secondly, those who are single are equally affirmed. Absolutely. Third, marriage was God's idea, purposed uh, around and inseparably connected to his image and is identified by self-giving love, not what can I get out of this relationship, but this is the person God has called me to give myself completely to. Marriage is a covenant. All covenants in Scripture are initiated by God. And if you look at the covenants, God is essentially saying when he's coming into a a covenant agreement with people, he's saying, I'm giving myself to you completely, exclusively, and permanently. And then there would be opportunities for his people to respond ceremonially to say, okay, we're entering into this covenant with you. And God, as a people, we give ourselves to you completely, not just part of us, but all of us. 
exclusively and permanently. And the covenants shift and improve at various points throughout Scripture, and it, it best comes to life or is best demonstrated in Jesus himself, the Easter message, him on the cross. This is God coming as close as he can to humanity to say, when you're in a mess, I don't hide, but I come close, and I give myself completely, exclusively, and permanently to you. The cross was the covenant gesture of God to humanity. And baptism is our covenant response back to him. It's us saying, I give myself completely, not just part of me, not just the, the faith part of me or the spiritual part of me as if we're divided up into different parts. No, I give my whole self to you completely, exclusively, and permanently. And so marriage is not just sort of some agreement between two people who are really happily in love with each other. It is a covenant. It is a mirror and a reflection to each other and to the world around us of what God in his covenant love is like. It's a tall order and an awesome opportunity for marriages. This leads us to the fourth thought. Sex is God's idea for pleasure and procreation within a mutual whole self-giving. That, that phrase is very important. We live up in a hookup culture, you know, friends with benefits, all that kind of thing. But that's essentially two people saying, listen, let's just sort of exchange part of ourselves with each other, but then live, you know, I'd like to reserve the rest of me for just me, and we'll live kind of independently of each other. It's actually incredibly selfish, self-centered. It's the opposite of covenant. Whole self-giving, consensual, lifelong covenant. Sex is a covenant renewal celebration. Just a note for parents here. If you have kids that are growing up in your home, the narrative isn't just don't have sex before you get married. A lot of times that's probably what's internalized or understood or felt. But the narrative is so much bigger than that. But make sure it doesn't get imprinted on them that it's just the rule is don't have sex before you get married. It just sounds so negative, and it actually reflects poorly upon sexuality when that's the narrative that's understood. Um, when I was a youth pastor, and, and even since, as I've had opportunity to speak at youth events and so on, um, there's times that I'll, I'll, I'll say to teens, hey, don't avoid sex. What, talk about getting attention quickly. They're like, what? Was that a pastor that just said that? Don't avoid sex. Plan for it. Um, sometimes the way as parents we talk about things like this or we relay guidance, it can sort of send messaging to teenagers or kids that are growing up in our homes that you better avoid this. Well, listen, I only avoid bad things, right? I mean, uh, I don't avoid going to Mexico. <laughs> I avoid hugging porcupines, <laughs> right? Um, if I hugged a porcupine and my arms are slashed up, I would also avoid putting my hand in a bucket of vinegar, right? You know, I would avoid that. It would just feel terrible. So why would we introduce language into the, the sexual narrative in our home that, well, you better avoid this. Don't do that. Don't do that. I plan to go to Mexico. Like when you have a good thing that you're looking forward to, you make plans. It's exciting. It's wonderful. I want to invite you as parents, find creative ways when you're talking about tender topics with family members and kids to bring this into a positive light. God created this. It's good. 
The world has tried to twist in and distort and introduce this idea of dirtiness and all of that associated with sexuality. And it's, I mean, don't gross your kids out with getting weird or whatever, but just help them understand this is a good thing that God has created and plan for it and prepare for it. The narrative isn't avoid, the narrative is planned for it. The narrative is actually how sex fits within this idea of the story of God. Every child that grows up in the world grows up with themselves at the center of the story, themselves at the center of the universe. Discipleship is about removing self from center and putting God in the center. And too often, even you and I, mom and dad and grandparents, we read scripture with ourselves at the center of our own discipleship, and we're not. It's about God. Scripture is about God, not about how to change you. It's about him and his glory and what he's done for you. And so see God at work in creation, in Genesis, covenants with people, faithfulness to people. See that story. See how marriage is a mirror of God who makes covenants of love to people. Even when there's challenge and pain and problem, he shows up and he helps. See that story. See how sex is part of a covenant renewal expression and help your kids understand that this is part of God's story. Not just you and your hormones at the center. It's God and his glory at the center. So week one in this series, we talked about design, God's design as expressed in Genesis. Jesus spoke words affirming God's design. Second week, we talked about serving one another in relationship. Last week, we talked about this idea of value, that we value one another. And in particular, one thing that the movement of Jesus did so wonderfully was elevate women who were previously considered second-class citizens. And it was as if Jesus was saying, listen, in my movement, it's not going to be like that. Male, female, equal. Today, as we go towards a fourth word in this series, I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, I hope you're excited to go into this book. For some of you, if you're a little less familiar, you might be like, isn't that the scary one with the dragons and the beasts? Yes. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that scary. It's dramatic language that's symbolic. And at the end of the day, the book of Revelation is a letter to churches of then and now. And it's about worship and it's about witness, and it's entirely about Jesus. And so the first two chapters of Revelation is this wonderful, it's this, this follower of Jesus named John, who after Jesus is risen, years later, he sees Jesus in this visionary experience, and Jesus is glorified, and Jesus is in the center of his church. There's these symbolic like lampstands that represent the church. There's seven of them. And Jesus is right in the middle. Not you and I in the middle. He's in the middle. He's the center of church. He's not at the side. He's not in the back. He's in the center of it. And to these seven lampstands, to these seven churches, Jesus has seven specific messages. If, if we were ever to study these seven messages, it's not that they're just sort of, here's what was wrong in Ephesus, here's what was wrong in Thyatira and these other seven places. It's seven messages for seven themes that touch on real things all churches of all time face and need to grapple with. Today, I want us to think about his words to the church at Pergamum the church at Pergamum. Follow with me in verse 12. To the angel of the church of Pergamum, write this. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. 
I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. If you have an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want us to approach this text with two main questions in mind to begin with here. First is this, what's up with Pergamum? And secondly, what's up with Jesus? A little bit of strong language from him. He's a little bit punchy with his church here. Why? What's going on? What's up with Pergamum? There's two things primarily I want you to know. Did you notice Jesus is pretty clear? He thinks Satan lives there twice. You live in this bad place. Why would Jesus be saying that? There's, there's many, many reasons, but let me just give you a few that are at the center of it. The city of Pergamum was the first city in the Roman Empire to win a bid to build a temple to worship the Caesar as Lord. And so they pioneered the first temple that worshipped an emperor in Rome. It's what the city became known for. And so that was a strong place of emperor worship. Secondly, there was this large conical mountain around Nearby the video, the, the video, my goodness, what is it, a blockbuster? Uh, the, the city, rather. And on this mountain, sort of rose like a throne, if you will, there were, there were several temples to pagan gods. One of them was a healing god. Another one was known as a saving god. So with these sort of three pieces of information in mind, what you have in Pergamum are a false lord, the emperor, or Caesar, a false savior, one god, and a false healer, this other god. And so it had really become an epicenter for for thought that attempted to pressure and change the thinking of people everywhere. In fact, Pergamum was known to have the second largest library in the world at the time. There was over 200,000 volumes in this library in Pergamum at the time of John's writing. So, it was a headquarters for Satan's work of distracting people from Jesus. The second thing we know about Pergamum is this, through Jesus' words here, um, they were experiencing bombardment from outside against their faith, and also pressure from within their church concerning their faith. So they were forced with this question, how do we, as followers of Jesus in Pergamum and part of his church here, how do we faithfully follow Jesus here? What kind of things should we do, and what are the things that we're not supposed to do? And some people responded greatly to this. This fellow Antipas is mentioned in this text here. Antipas was somebody, a follower of Jesus in Pergamum, who died for his faith. He was put in a difficult position by Roman authorities where he either had to renounce his faith in Jesus Christ or face his death. And he remained faithful 
to Jesus. And so Jesus commends not just the example of Antipas, but he says, you all are withstanding this bombardment from outside. Well done. But then we realize, while many are withstanding the bombardment from outside, there are some, there's a good portion of people within the church that are succumbing to pressures from within. How do we know that? Well, there's a bit of language here, and I just want to help you understand it. There's a reference to a fellow named Balaam, and then to a group of people called the Nicolaitans. Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Now, without going too deeply into it, let me just explain it to you this way. The name Balaam is Hebrew. The name Nicholas, which is where we get Nicolaitans from, is Greek. When you break down the word Balaam, it comes from two words. Baal, which means conqueror or lord, and am, which means the people. When you look in the Greek at the name Nicholas, it comes from two words. Nikan, which means conqueror, and laos, which means the people. So Jesus is communicating quite clearly to this church in Pergamum. Listen, there's an influence inside of your church. And it reminds me of Balaam and Nicholas or Nicolaitans. There is a movement from within your church that is trying to conquer the people. How? By conquering the way that they think. Jesus is addressing the fact that impure ideas had begun to infiltrate the church. And some of the people, if you will imagine, there was probably a Starbucks somewhere in Pergamum. You know, they're there with a friend or two from the church, and they just they begin floating some ideas with them. You know, here's something I've been thinking about. And another one of them is at a pub with another friend. You know, here's another idea I've been thinking about. And this isn't pressure coming from the outside. These are people within the church that are, you know, swapping some ideas with each other. And Jesus is warning them, listen, the kind of ideas you're swapping, they come from this background of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. There's a, there's a subversive movement behind these ideas you're swapping around with each other where something, an ominous force, is trying to conquer you in your thinking. So there was infiltration. There were cultural influences that surrounded them, pressures perhaps to succumb to immediate gratification. And then there was their own impulses. And so when you, you throw all that together and then you add to that these conversations they're having at Starbucks and at the pub where there's twists that they begin allowing in faith. And that's the point of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. I won't go into the depths of the story of Balaam, but the Nicolaitans were a group of false teachers that were circulating some thought among early church people. And when you combine those thoughts with cultural pressures and cultural norms and then your inner appetites, which at times can be very strong, it became destructive for the people of the church of Pergamum. What kind of twists were they entertaining with Scripture? Well, they really loved this idea that they had become free in Christ. You know, maybe they sung some of the songs that we sing about being free in Christ. And so the word free makes a lot of sense. Well, Christ died for us. I've been set free. Christ has set us free from the burden of the law. You see, an outright lie is dangerous, right? If you believe a lie, you're in trouble. But you can actually get into more trouble when you believe something that's half true. 
And this is the territory the church in Pergamum found themselves. They embraced some of this fancy teaching brought to them by the Nicolaitans that said, listen, you're free in Christ. You're no longer under the burden of the law, which led to the next thought in their minds. Right, that might mean that regulating desires and impulses feels burdensome. And it feels like a new law has been put on us through Christ. And that's not right. This must be, we must be allowed to pursue our freedoms. So this idea of freedom was meddled with. The second idea was the idea of grace. It sounded like this to them. You've been forgiven. You belong to Jesus. Nothing can affect your relationship with him. There's a lot of truth in that statement. But with the Nicolaitans and the influence of the, the conquer the mind, Balaamite type of thinking brought to them was, well, if that's the case, how can anything hurt you? If your sin is forgiven past, present, future, then you're safe in Christ. And so you'll be okay. And as a result, several in the church of Pergamum found themselves tumbling backwards, specifically into sexual immorality. They were hoping to combine faith with the prevailing culture of the time. And friends, it does not work. It does not result in ongoing life in Christ. What it results in is Christians who become fully assimilated back into culture and begin severing their relationship with Christ. They might try to uphold a, a propped up version of faith, but it's no longer real. They're just embracing it, hoping that the best of it will somehow apply to them. But ultimately, they put themselves at the center of their faith story once again and are wanting to follow the whims and desires that live within. So that's a little bit of context on Pergamum. What's up with Jesus? You know, he's using some pretty strong language here. He's the one with a sword. In each of these seven letters to the seven churches, there's a bit of a description of him, and he opens with this. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Well, that sounds a bit intimidating. What a way to introduce yourself, God. Um, but there's a reason why he does that. The symbol for the city of Pergamum, it was up and around the city everywhere, was a sword. So this is Jesus saying, listen, I know where you live. You guys have swords around your city, and it's your city's way of sort of promoting its own power, but I have a greater authority. I have a word that cuts like a sword. And then he has some other strong things to say. He says, I have a few things against you. And then he says, repent, which means change your thinking. And then he says, otherwise, if you don't, I will come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You know, if you grew up with sort of the um, fuzzy, warm image of Jesus uh, with his white robe and blue sash, and he's Swedish, and he's just soft and cozy all the time, it's a little hard for us to imagine him saying all this stuff. Listen, I've got a sword. If you don't make changes here, I'm showing up with that sword, and I'll make the changes. It's pretty intense. Why does the Prince of Peace use such fierce language? Two reasons. Number one, his children are in a battle for their minds. So he shows up to throw down. Secondly, Jesus hates things that damage his children and disfigure the image of his father in their lives and in their marriages. And so 
he shows up to fight. Scholar and author Daryl Johnson on this specific passage says this, why does Jesus speak this way? I want you to follow along on the screen. I've got this for you here. Why does Jesus seem so intolerant? Boy, intolerance not that, you know, it's not that popular of a stance to take in our world today. In our day, tolerance is exalted as a great virtue, especially on moral and religious matters. Here, Jesus presents himself as passionately intolerant. How unpopular in our world, hey? Why? Johnson carries on to say, because he loves the truth, speaks the truth, he is the truth, and because, as he claims elsewhere, falsehood and deception of any kind enslave people. Jesus is passionately intolerant because he is passionately intolerant of people being enslaved. So when you read this story, and our cozy Swedish Jesus starts using sword language and attack language, it's because of passion for his children, passion for his people, passion for his father's image, passion for the covenant relationships that his people has with his father, passion for the kind of covenants that you and I enter into in our marriage relationships as well. This passion carries on, not just from Jesus, but through him, through his early church and the first writings of the early church as well. Listen to the way Paul pens it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Do you not know that your body is a member of Christ himself? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. Can you say, I am not my own? I am not my own. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Some of the Gnostic influences of the time that were infiltrating through the Nicolaitans into the church of Pergamum and other early churches tried to introduce a large separation between the physical side of us and the spiritual side of us. They tried to punch them as far apart from each other. And they thought they were doing good. They're like, well, it's hard for us to understand how Jesus you know, was both God and man, so maybe there's this spiritual nature and this flesh nature, and they're far apart from each other. It's not right. In Scripture, we are one in the same. It's not that you have a spiritual category and a physical category. You are all one in and of yourself. And so the Gnostic influence would have loved for the early church believers to trust that if, if I do something with my body, it actually doesn't happen to me because my body is very separate from who the true me is. And what Paul is asserting here in 1 Corinthians is what you do with your body, you do with you. And you do with God's temple. And you do with Jesus himself. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul goes on to write, but among you there must not even be a hint, can you say hint? There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. I had to travel earlier this week, and so I was eating at a few different restaurants, stayed in a hotel. And you go to a restaurant, and you pick up the knife and fork, and you look at it, and there's something gooey on it. Well, you just eat it anyways, right? 
No. You say, excuse me, um, could I get a new fork, please? Why? Because clean is good. Not even a hint of any kind of impurity on my fork, please. And then, you know, after I have a meal, I go to my hotel room, ready to go to sleep, very tired. You pull back the sheets and you look. Clean is good, right? Not even a hint of anything not clean. I, if that's the case, I'm calling them. I need, my, I need new laundry on this bed, right? Clean is good. Colossians 3, verse 5. Paul, again, is writing, and he says this. Put to death the sinful things lurking within you, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, which is idolatry. I need to just let you know, friends, lust is a lie every single time. I remember um, as a single guy working in a, a, a labor job that I held for seven years, uh, got to know some of the co-workers and another guy I was working with was a Christian guy. He was going to a uni Christian university at the time. And both of us were single. He was uh, engaged, though, so he was a little closer to the promised land than I was, and so I was like, oh, you know, we're just excited for each other, and for, especially for him. And, um, and then one day when we were working, he said, hey, what do you think? Like, once you're married, is it wrong to lust for your spouse, or can you lust for your spouse? And so, because I was a Bible college student, he was a Christian university student, we had this like philosophical conversation about, can you lust for your spouse? Is that okay? And, friends, it's not okay. It's not. Because lust is a lie every time. It puts self and selfish gratification at the center of the story. Don't lust for your spouse. Love your spouse. Matthew chapter 5 going back to some words from Jesus, but I tell you, anyone who looks lustfully at someone has already committed adultery with them in their hearts. I think if Jesus had the opportunity to sit in my little Ford Focus back in 2006, he would have said, anyone who looks lustfully at that chip has already eaten it. Hmm. He carries on in the same text. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is using big language here. He is not being literal, but what he is saying is this. Deal drastically with anything that's tripping you up and causing sin in your life. As we see in the Pergamum account, sexual sins often lead people well astray, well off course eternally. In Pergamum, we see that immorality and idolatry end up going hand in hand. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. I won't take time to unpack this one, but Scripture never encourages us to fight sexual immorality. It says to flee from it. When you're in a fight, where's your focus? Against what or whom you're fighting? If you are fleeing, where's your focus? On the safe place or person you're running to. The fight is for your focus. In Titus chapter 2, it says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. It teaches us to say no 
to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It's the grace of God. Isn't it great that Titus uses this language or the language in Titus says this? It's the grace of God, not the cheap grace that the Nicolaitans were trying to pawn off on the church of Pergamon. No, it's the real grace of God that empowers you to step up and and to be able to say no to things. It empowers you to walk in the self-control that God has given you. Isn't it interesting that in the fruit of the Spirit list is what? Self-control. The more you and I spend time with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, more of the fruit of self-control grows in your life. Friends, God is not a control freak looking to control you. He's looking to gift himself with, he's looking to gift you with himself so that you can control you with his strength and his power. Purity was a completely new virtue that Jesus and the early church introduced into the ancient world. And when purity is anchored to Jesus, let me say that again, when it's anchored to Jesus, not to rule-based religion, but to Jesus, to a relationship with your creator, his ways of purity will only produce greater health, greater life, greater love. So what do we do? What can we do? The reality is none of us have walked this out perfectly. None of us. Struggles can be very real, and temptations can still bombard. I want to close with this, and the worship team can come back. In chapter 2, verse 17, the final verse of the Pergamum letter, Jesus says this, To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give them a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to those who receive. Jesus offers some help here for us. First of all, he says to the one who overcomes. How in the world are you and I supposed to make it where there's just bombardment all around us all the time when it comes to sexualization of everything? How are you and I supposed to make it? Jesus says to the one who overcomes. Just a few thoughts very quickly. If and when this area of your life is troubled in some way, shape, or form and you feel like you've fallen, Remember this, purity is not a destination, it's a direction. If you've fallen, get up and keep going because you're going in the right direction of purity. It's not some place you arrive at one day and you just stay there, you keep moving. I think everybody in this room knows what it's like to have fallen in some way in their life and it's discouraging, deflating, defeating. What do you do? You let our gracious Lord and Savior lift you up and keep moving in the direction of purity. If we were to look at the the words and the passages that we just read, here's three thoughts quickly that will help you to be one who can overcome. Number one, deal drastically. This week, some of you need to deal drastically with something that's been tripping you up. Deal drastically with it. Don't just sort of shuffle it off to the side. Well, it'll be okay. No, deal drastically with it. Secondly, strengthen self-control. Here's what you may find. Even fast like a lunch this week. Fast and pray for half an hour or something like that. You may find that as you strengthen self-control in one area of your life, that muscle gains strength for other areas of your life. And then the third thing that will help you to overcome is to flee. Flee, flee away. 
I watched some YouTube videos this week of like animal attacks on the African safari. I was gonna show you some, but I got too caught up and I couldn't make a decision on all of the videos I wanted to show you. Just go check them out yourself. I mean, there's this one video of this water buffalo baby that gets caught by lions, dragged, and they're trying to drown it in, in this body of water. And all of a sudden a crocodile comes and steals it. And then it starts attacking lions as well. It's wild. And then the thing gets away. And so the lions are trying to get back at it. The lions get it back. And then the water buffaloes, all the moms and dads, they come, they come back. It's kind of like, I was watching, I'm like, oh, that's the church. We're coming back. We're going to rescue you. And then one of the water buffaloes or whatever, they come in and they throw one of the lions literally with their horns. It was amazing. I'm like, that, that was Calvin Farnell. He was coming and just booting this one out of here. You get out. We're going to get you. We're, you're part of a church family. You're part of a team that's going to support and care for you. You need to flee in the right direction. Don't flee towards the water where the crocs are or towards the lions. Head in the right direction. Flee to God and flee to other brothers. Guys, find other brothers in our church that you can trust and run to them and say, listen, I'm struggling or listen, I failed. Listen, I'm feeling tempted. Can you pray for me? Run to brothers. Sisters, ladies in the church, find other ladies. If there's a struggle or a temptation or whatever it is, phone them. Spend time, have a coffee with them. I just need to put this out there. I'm struggling with this or we're grappling with something. Can you pray for me? Flee to God. Flee to your Christian brothers and sisters. Really practically, I want everybody to know that there's hope and help. I have one more slide. I hope there you there you go. Parents, this is a really helpful uh, podcast on porn proofing your children. If ever, if you want to, you can just take a picture of this with your phone. We'll leave it up for a few moments here. I would encourage most people to take a picture of this, by the way, so that anybody who's like, I really want to take a picture, but if people are going to think that I'm weird if I take a picture of this because it's, do I have a problem? Listen, we all could take a picture of this. I think it would help us. So if you need help as a parent, im, im, im excellent resource. Your own healing and support, puredesire.org. Be sure to type in what you see as you see it there. Don't just Google pure desire. Garbage comes up, okay? Um, this is helpful. If you need help, if you need healing, there's great resources for you. Now, when Jesus lands his message to Pergamum, he talks about manna, and he talks about giving them a white stone. What's that all about? God's children, when they were finding their way to a promised land, they were on a lonely, difficult journey, and they needed provision. God miraculously provided for them food called manna. And that word shows up here again. In the city of Pergamum, there was a local stone that was black, and it was used by most of the builders for their buildings. So in Pergamum, a lot of the buildings that were stone constructed were black. So if they had to put an inscription on the building, what they did is they found white marble and they would inscribe the identity of the building on it or whatever needed to be known about the building and then place that on the building. And Jesus says, listen, to the one who overcomes, I'm giving you manna. I'm giving you a white stone. What's he saying there? It sounds confusing, doesn't it? No, he's saying, uh, if you're on a hard journey that's challenging, I'll provide. If you don't know who you are and you're looking to the world or some sexual partner to affirm you and your identity, no, 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 no. I will give you your identity. In a world that's marked in darkness, I'm going to put you there, white, with a name. You'll be made pure. That's your identity, not the garbage that's around you, not the mistakes that you've made. It's who I say you are. People turn to sex so often to provide something to them, manna, 
or to give them an identity of some kind, the white stone. And so Jesus' response, I'll give you manna. I'll give you a white stone. I'll give you identity and provision. Let's stand together. So where do we put our focus as we conclude today? I understand that for some of you, a topic like this, it's a sensitive one. For some of you, it might even feel troubling or there's a sense of guilt or shame. That's never our hope. That's never our hope. I don't want you to leave today with your attention on yourself or your mistakes or your past. I want you to leave with your attention on Jesus. We're going to go into the bridge and then the chorus of forever. In the book of John, Jesus said this, in this world you will have trouble. Well, thanks for the great promise, Jesus. (laughs) But then he says this, take heart for I have overcome the world. Friends, it's a battle. But Jesus shows up with his sword and he says, I'll fight against them. He's not looking to fight against you. He's looking to fight against the ideas that bombard and challenge and pressure. He is the overcomer who is fighting on your side. He is your provider. He is the one who gives you identity. Let's respond and worship to you. we prepare to close today. Uh, I wonder if I could ask Calvin and Claire and Vaughn and Lisa, just if you could make yourselves available up front. Just if anybody needs prayer today, it could be for anything that's come up during the whole service. There might have been something that just stirred in your heart during worship, or there's something that spoke to you today, and you're just like, oh, I just love somebody to pray with me or pray for me. These couples would be so glad to support you in prayer this morning. I want to pray for us corporately together now as we prepare. Father, I pray that you'd speak to each heart. I know that some of the subject matter in a series like this and a topic like ours today can bring up memory or can bring up regret or pain or whatever it is. I pray that you would just silence lies of the enemy that would introduce shame, that would introduce condemnation. I pray for the great work of your real grace, your great forgiveness to cover and to work and to heal and to restore every heart, every life. Father, we confess as weak people, all of us know what it's like not to be perfect in all kinds of areas of life. And so we declare again our dependence on you. As we go into your world on your mission, we can't do it in our own strength. We need you. We need you. So we need your Holy Spirit's presence and power moving through our lives. We'll follow you now. In Jesus' strong name, we pray this together and everybody said, Amen. Laura and the team will just lead us in singing a little longer as you begin to leave. Have a wonderful week. Spend some time saying hi to one another. You can linger and worship, pray with one another if you like as well. God bless you.
Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.